0: Thank you, Celia, and good evening, everyone. We uh, come to the second in a series of messages on the second letter of Paul to Timothy. Paul, as you may recall, is in prison in Rome. He's cold. Bring me my cloak, he says in chapter 4. He's bored, bring me my books, and he's lonely. Everyone, he says, has deserted me. He's staring execution in the face. Again, in chapter four, he says, the time has come for my departure. Moreover, Paul predicts uh, in chapter three, a time of terrible persecution for the Christian church, and a large-scale falling away from the Christian faith. And yet this great apostle has by no means given up despite all of these adverse circumstances and he's still looking to build for the future. And in this letter to Timothy, the last of Paul's known writings, he gives warning, encouragement, guidance and instruction that I think are as relevant to his uh, us today as they were to his immediate successors such as Timothy in those days Now, I'm particularly struck by a theme that runs all the way through our passage this evening and I do hope you have your Bible still open in front of you um, page 1195 I think most helpful if uh, as I point out various uh, sections to you mainly from our, the passage that Celia has read to us but also one or two other parts of this letter It'd be helpful for you to see them for yourself. So it's 2 Timothy chapter 1 and page 1195. Now, the theme that I'm particularly struck about in our passages this evening is this theme of not being ashamed of the gospel. The theme is introduced as early as verse 8, which was in fact part of last week's, last Sunday evening's uh, reading. In verse 8 you'll see that Paul urges Timothy do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me his prisoner a twofold not being ashamed there neither of the Lord nor of me Paul says his prisoner Then in verse 12 Paul declares I am not ashamed And then when we reach verse 12 excuse me when we reach verse 15 we come across many who evidently were ashamed, certainly ashamed of Paul and possibly even of the gospel itself. Because Paul says, everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now let me just pause on this because it's quite puzzling, really. The province of Asia covered an area of what we call modern Turkey, roughly the size of England and Wales. It included not only Ephesus, but all where Timothy was, but also the, all those seven churches of Asia that we read about in the early chapters of the Revelation. And according to Acts chapter 19, it was in this region that Paul spent nearly three years during his third missionary journey preaching the gospel and meeting great opposition and also great success. Does Paul now mean that everyone in that area had turned against him, had turned their back on him? Well, I think that chapter 4 and verse 16 clarifies this question for us as to what was going on here. Paul says, at my first defence, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. Now, reading between the lines, I think that the likely scenario runs like this. When Paul had first been imprisoned in Rome, he had had the opportunity to mount his own defence. And he'd been relying on Christian leaders in the province of Asia to come across and to testify on his behalf. But they all let him down. None of them made that journey. We can only assume from the way in which, which Paul refers to these um, defectors that they felt ashamed to be associated with him and with his message now that he was banged up in jail, uh, virtually a condemned criminal. There was, however, one notable exception to this wholesale desertion. Verse 16 Onesiphorus was not ashamed of my chains. Previously, when Paul had spent those nearly three years in Ephesus, it was Onesiphorus, who had repeatedly come to his, to his aid. We read that in verse 18. And now that Paul was in prison in Rome, this man had made his way across to Rome, sought Paul out with some difficulty, and refreshed him with food and companionship. Verse sixteen. So there we have this running theme of not being ashamed. Paul wasn't ashamed. Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed. Many who might have come to Paul's support, uh, to Paul's aid, but didn't, evidently were ashamed. And Timothy, Paul's young friend and co-minister in the gospel, need not be ashamed. This theme of not being ashamed crops up more widely in the New Testament, not least in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus himself warned in the Gospels, if, a, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. We see from that the grave danger of being ashamed of Jesus and his message and the challenge of resisting that danger. But how can we do that? What does it mean for us to be unashamed Christians? I gather three aspects of this from our passage this evening. What does it mean to be an unashamed Christian? First of all, it means for us to guard the gospel. It means for us to guard the gospel. Paul says in verse 13 and following, what you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Now, I'm sure you're like me in that none of us like labels being labeled, uh, do we? I must admit I don't mind, as a Christian, being called an evangelical because that means I am, or at least I aspire to be, a gospel Christian, a Christian committed to the evangel, the good news, the gospel. But what about the label conservative, which is sometimes applied to people like us? Well, of course, if it means that we are reactionary, hidebound, and constitutionally resistant to change, then it would be a very unwelcome label. But if the word conservative means that we seek to conserve the biblical faith, to preserve it, to guard it against unhealthy denials and distortions, then you can count me in, and I hope that I can count you in as well. Because that is exactly what Paul was urging Timothy to do, to guard the gospel. But, you know, the gospel is not like some fragile piece of jewelry that is to be protected under lock and key in some museum. Guarding the gospel, I think, is more like maintaining an engine in tip-top condition, in tip-top working order. Paul recognised this dynamic uh, uh, effect of guarding the gospel when he declared himself, in verse 11, to be a herald, an apostle, and a teacher of the gospel. Three very dynamic expressions. As a herald, he must announce it and publicise it. As an apostle, he must take it to wherever he has been sent And as a teacher, he must impart its truth with clarity and with freshness. Paul had gospel work to do. Timothy had gospel work to do. And Paul will expand on that in the later chapters of this letter. We have gospel work to do. Will we take our part in guarding this good deposit, this gospel that has been handed down to us? from the days of the apostles? Will we ensure that each one of us has a, grasp, a sound grasp of the terms of the gospel? Will we encourage and support the work of the gospel at home and abroad, just as Adrian has prayed for us that we might do? And will we do all of this, verse 13, with faith and love in Christ Jesus? And also, verse 14, with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Because we are not on our own in this matter. And that's one of the main reasons why we need not and ought not be ashamed. Well, if we seek to guard the gospel in this way, we will be on our way to becoming Christians who are not ashamed of that gospel. But now we come to our second characteristic of Christians who are not ashamed of the gospel. If we have made up our minds not to be ashamed of the gospel but to guard it, what can we expect to get out of it, I ask you? What's in it for us? Well, Paul gives the answer again back in verse 8. What we get out of the gospel, if we seek to guard it faithfully, is suffering. Join with me, Paul says to Timothy, in suffering. And he'll reiterate that point later in chapter 3, verse 12. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now I think this is a word that we need to hear especially today. Sometimes suffering for the Christian faith, for us in this country at this time, doesn't amount to much more than embarrassment. But that embarrassment can be really rather acute. A philosophy lecturer is speaking to a group of first-year students. Nobody believes in heaven or hell anymore, says the lecturer. Or, with a twinkle in his eye, maybe they do. Does anyone here believe in heaven and hell, put up your hand if you do. You take a deep breath and gradually, slowly, diffidently, up goes your hand. Of the hundred or so students in that class, in their lecture lecture theatre, just one other has put up their hands. You rather wish you'd kept your hands In your pockets. We can be embarrassed, we can feel embarrassed by the loneliness of doing some small act of witness for the gospel, but it's becoming more serious than that, you know. We hear so much about the suffering church in many parts of the world, Nigeria in the news just today, but there's a skepticism in our own country that increasingly borders on hostility. I quite often think and refer in my own teaching to the so-called new atheists. I find them interesting, not because I think they have many interesting new arguments. I don't think they have. But I find it interesting in that the tone that they take nowadays. I'm thinking of... Uh, 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 Richard Dawkins, the late Christopher Hitchens, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the scientist Peter Atkins, and people like that. They adopt a very intimidating uh, tone about people of faith in general, and Christians in particular. Earlier this year, Richard Dawkins addressed uh, a rally in the United States. Uh, it was called a reason rally, as though it's only sceptics who use reason and their minds in their thinking. Dawkins told his cheering audience what to do with people of faith. Mock them, he said. Ridicule them in public. And there's more and more people jumping on that particular bandwagon. And in an atmosphere of increasing hostility is not easy, especially for you younger Christians. The sense of rejection can be very hurtful. It's not comfortable finding yourself at odds with your family or your friends or your teachers and lecturers because they do not share your beliefs, beliefs or sympathize with your moral choices. And this is where we need one another as fellow Christians. I was speaking to a young person just the other day who described herself as a modern Christian which seemed to entail, amongst other things, spending the last two years without any regular Christian fellowship at all. It made me think of a story that attaches to the name of the famous evangelist of some generations ago, D.L. Moody. Moody visited the home of a person who had stopped attending church. Moody went over silently to the roaring fire, and he took a flaming coal out of the fireplace. He put it down by itself on the stone hearth. And they both observed quietly that within a few moments, it stopped burning. He didn't need to say very much. He had made his point. If we deliberately and over a period of time separate ourselves from our fellow believers, it is very likely that a flame will die. Let us remember to meet together, says the writer of the Hebrews, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us not only remember one another and our fellowship with one another, but let us also always remember Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on him the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And there's that same word again, the word shame or ashamed. That's Hebrews chapter 12. That mention of Jesus scorning the shame of his own cross for the joy set before him brings me on to my third and last point. What's our third characteristic, according to this passage, of an unashamed Christian? It is this, to rejoice in the gospel. As unashamed Christians, we will rejoice in the gospel. Not simply guard it, not only be prepared to suffer for it, but also rejoice in it. So let me ask you for a second time, what is really in it for us? What does really make all of this worthwhile, including the possibility, the prospect of suffering for the gospel? Well, Paul can testify to a great deal of divine help along the way. He can say, for example, in chapter 4 and verse 16 and following, that even though so many of his friends had deserted him, the Lord stood by my side... And gave me strength. I was delivered, he said, from the lion's mouth. And God has promised to you and to me that he will not allow us to be tested beyond what we are able to endure. So Paul was aware of divine help along the way, meeting every obstacle. But Paul also kept his sights clearly focused on the final outcome. And that takes us back to verse 12 in chapter 1. I know, he says, whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Notice quickly, please, with me the whom, the what, and the when of this great and famous statement. The whom. I know whom I have believed, says Paul. It is, of course, quite something to be able to say with confidence, I know what I have believed. But how much more it is for Paul and for us to be able to say, I know whom I have believed. There is a world of difference, is there not? Then what is it that Paul had entrusted to God? Everything all of his hopes and fears, all of his opportunities and dangers. Paul had entrusted his very self to the Lord, and we can do the same. And how long will the Lord guard Paul for? Until that day, says Paul. What day is that? The day of the Lord. Yes, we can say with Paul that whatever lies between this present day of struggle and that final day of victory, he is able to keep that which we have entrusted to him until that time when all pain is lifted, all shadows flee, and faith is lost in sight. And so as we come to Holy Communion once again this evening, and eat this bread and drink this cup, symbols of a disgraced and yet life-changing and world-changing death. And as we proclaim the Lord's death until that day when he comes in glory, we can do so unashamedly, taking our part in guarding the gospel, in suffering for it as needs be, and in rejoicing in it. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we may well ask with the Apostle, who is sufficient for these things? But we know that we take our confidence, not in ourselves, and even though we love and support and encourage one another, our confidence is not in one another even, but in you, a living, saving, redeeming, sustaining and protecting god father keep us safe until that great great day and as we go forward in our christian work and pilgrimage grant us victory over every obstacle so that we may see your gospel go from strength to strength even in our days in our lives in our families In our groups of friends, may your gospel continue to be protected and proclaimed. Amen.